Good. Well, let's turn to our reading this morning, and uh, we are in Genesis. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available uh, in the sides at the back. Do please take a church Bible if you need to use one. And we are in Genesis chapter 8, and we're reading there from verse 20 through to chapter 9. So Genesis 8 and verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham 
was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Amen. May God bless his word to us this morning. Well, let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 9. And as we're doing that, just let me uh, say that it was 10 years ago this Sunday morning that our congregation had its last service in our former building in Bath Street. And uh, we met again in, the ev- uh, in, in Buchanan Street, rather. We met again in the evening in Bath Street. And uh, God has been good and faithful to us, hasn't he, ever since then. We've never looked back, and we've lacked for nothing. The God who restrains to redeem. Even before the end of the flood story, we can see that this can't be God's final answer to human sin. Look at eight, chapter 8, verse 21. The company who were saved through that judgment are still flawed people with hearts evil from their youth. So the world has been purged drastically, and yet only outwardly, and the problem of the human heart remains, and so evil remains. So how long before such judgment has to happen again? God uh, restates uh, his purpose for the world in chapter 9, verse 1, that humanity multiplies and fills the earth. But of course, as they do that, They multiply their sin and their evil to pollute the world, which is why God has just had to punish so drastically. But God knows that judgment on human sin alone can never mend the world. He's already promised a final great reckoning to remove the dark pyre of sin that it has over mankind forever through the promised seed who will come to crush the serpent forever. He will both destroy sin and evil forever, but also save a great multitude of people who are made in his image forever. And so to give time and occasion for this ultimate goal, God must preserve the earth. And to do that, he must restrain evil in the human heart so that mankind can multiply and fill the earth and yet not destroy it and not destroy themselves by the multiplying of their evil. 
God must restrain mankind in order to redeem mankind and retain the earth in order to recreate it ultimately in glorious perfection according to his purpose. And Genesis 9 shows us the God who restrains to redeem and who retains in order to recreate. And he declares his purpose here. He goes public, as it were, for the first time in chapter 9, verse 9. He establishes his covenant with the whole earth. Now, he's, he's reaffirming the same promise that he gave to Noah personally back in chapter 6, verse 18, and which goes right back to chapter 3, verse 15. But here, it's made public in a new way, affirming that God's covenant includes the whole of creation including all mankind after the flood. The the you in verse 9 there is plural. And it extends to all of their offspring. Now that was very important for Moses' first hearers to hear. The Israelites, the people of the covenant. Very important for them to know that God's covenant's concern is not just confined to Israel alone. Never was. And clearly this covenant, and indeed the sign of the covenant and its significance, is at the very heart of the message here. In verses 8 to 17, the word covenant comes seven times. Three times we hear of the covenant sign. That clearly is the focus. So our passage divides really into three sections. I want to look at it like that, but not in the order they come, because since the covenant is at the very heart, I want to start there, verses 8 to 17, which pick up on the very end of chapter 8. And the great concern here in these verses is the security of the universe. God's covenant gives reassurance to mankind. And above all the covenants, they are God's divine initiative. Through his covenant, God himself takes responsibility to preserve this universe. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, you all, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall be a flood to destroy the earth. It's a responsibility God takes on himself with a solemn oath. That's what a covenant is, a solemn oath sealed in blood. And Moses' readers knew that God is the covenant God, a God who declares his will, his purpose, and will never change it. And they know that he's king over the whole wide world. And so, just like ancient kings in their day, he made covenants with his people in a bond as strong as death. And when the sovereign Lord of all the universe, the creator of heaven and the earth, when he promises to preserve the earth, you really do have security. I just contrast that with all the insecurity in the pagan world, both ancient and modern. It's very striking in the accounts of the flood stories from Babylon and Sumeria and so on. You get the very opposite of security. There were all sorts of gods, not just one god, so you could never quite be sure what they would do next. You're never quite sure who's in control. And their behaviors were so capricious. If they'll cause a flood because, uh, well, human beings are too noisy at night and interrupt their sleep. Well, goodness, anything could happen. What's next? There are many cultures around the world still very much like that today. In the East, for example, where people worship the the pantheon of Hindu gods. 
or in the animistic cultures of East Asia, where if you don't keep the gods happy, you don't keep the ancestors placated, who knows what may happen? Great anxiety. And indeed in our secular Western world today, we live in a culture, don't we, of fear, of anxiety. What does the future hold? How can we know? Will there even be a future? Are we all going to be extinct? Think of all the hysteria that's around us today with all this stuff about the so-called climate emergency. What a total contrast we have here in a God who gives by his solemn covenant oath reassurance to all mankind about the security of the universe. I wonder if we take that nearly seriously enough as Christians today. Chapter 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I still remember learning that by heart in my Sunday school class. And it's true. This world is in God's hands. And it shall be until the entirety of his purpose is complete. Notice he says, as long as the earth shall last... So clearly this world will have an end, but until that day of final new creation, we can be absolutely secure. We don't need to be consumed by anxiety. Even when we're bombarded all the time with the latest scare stories, whatever they are, rising sea levels and melting ice caps, most of which is false anyway. Because God has promised. And no Christian should become so consumed with, with saving the planet as though the earth was some kind of mother god that needs our help to keep it alive. No, the earth is the Lord's and every single thing that is in it. And he has promised its security as long as he has a purpose for it. Nothing can possibly change that. Now, don't misunderstand. Of course, that's not a license for irresponsibility, for the rape of the earth, for exploitation of its life. Not at all. Well, come on to that. God gives very clear responsibilities to human beings also. But it does mean that Christian believers cannot live in fear like godless pagans do. As if we alone somehow held the future of the world in our hands. No. We don't. God does. And he holds it absolutely secure. Note how condescending God is to fearful humanity. He doesn't just give a promise. He gives a sign also. Verse 13, the bow in the clouds. We call it a rainbow, but notice the text in verse 13 just calls it a bow. It's God's bow. And that word in the scriptures always means a battle bow. And the symbolism is very vivid. God, the warrior judge, who sends floods to destroy mankind, now has hung up his bow. He hangs up his weapon. And he declares peace. And so at the very time when, when awful reminders of that judgment come, when the rains come, and no doubt certainly at first, people huddled together and wondered, is that the beginning of another flood? No, at that exact time, the dark skies would open and the rainbow appear and remind mankind that no, God has promised never again. What a wonderful reassurance. 
And just notice two things. First, what's the basis of this new covenant commitment of God to the world to which the bow is given as a sign? Well, look at chapter 8, verse 21. It's when the Lord smells the sweet savor of the burnt offerings on the altar that he gives this. We might say the blood of the sacrifice given up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God is what turns aside the hostility of God, his wrath, his righteous anger at man's sin. It's the blood of the sacrifice that causes God to hang up his weapon of judgment in peace. God's covenant grace towards humankind is centered on sacrifice. And secondly, on seeing the rainbow, whose remembering is it that gives this reassurance of the security of the future? Well, it's not that man sees and remembers, is it? And feels reassured, although no doubt that was true. Look at verse 15. I will remember, says God. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. That's the Lord himself saying that. The assurance of God's grace doesn't come from our remembering, but from his remembering. God sees and God remembers and God acts in mercy towards his world. And that's always the way with God's covenant signs and seals that he gives to his people. Our assurance doesn't come from within ourselves. It comes from God and from his promise to remember his covenant of grace. Think of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Very certainly in the minds of Moses' first readers because they've been through it. What did they do? Well, in obedient faith, they daubed blood on their doorposts and on their lintels. And God said, when I see the blood... I will pass over you. And therefore this day will be a memorial for you, a remembrance day to keep as a feast to the Lord. Where was the reassurance? Well, in the blood, on the doors, yes, but not because of a feeling inside that that gave the people, but rather an objective assurance that God's words were true and that he would see the blood and remember his promise and protect them from death. And that should help us, shouldn't it, in our great sign of remembrance in the bread and the cup that we share at the Lord's table. People over the years have got into terrible knots about what all that really means, where the efficacy really lies in all of that, but it's much more simple than we often realize. Do this as a remembrance of me, said Jesus, because this is the new covenant in my blood. That is, he's saying this now is what all the other covenants pointed to and signified. But just like way back with Noah, God has given us a visible sign of this wonderful word of promise to reassure us. Not because, not because we remember and we conjure up feelings of assurance within ourselves, not at all, but because God says he sees and he remembers. He remembers his unbreakable promise based on the blood of sacrifice and the sweet savor of that message to his heart that caused him to avert his wrath, to remember mercy upon those that he has granted mercy through the death of his son. That's why we really are doing something real 
when we gather around the Lord's table. Paul says we proclaim his death until he comes. And of course, yes, we proclaim it to one another, but above all, we're proclaiming it to God. And God says, when I see the bow in the cloud, I will remember my everlasting covenant. And in just the same way, he says to us, when I see the bread and the wine, I will remember the everlasting covenant sealed in the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we gain such assurance when we come to the Lord's table. It's not through magic. It's not through mystery. But it's through a certain knowledge that we proclaim afresh what the Lord has done for us. And when we do that, God says, I see and I remember my grace and my mercy. My promise to you is sure right until the very end. God must remember because... It is a covenant. It's a bond sealed in blood. It is unbreakable forever because of the sweet sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Alec Mateer says, God's covenant signs declare covenant promises to covenant people. When the bow is seen, I will remember my covenant. But God's covenant gives reassurance to mankind. It's his responsibility. It's his promise to preserve the universe and all in it. Now we can say more about that, but we must move on because there is another side to God's covenant always. There's a manward side. And that's also very important. We mustn't miss that, especially here, because sometimes you may hear it said, that God's covenant with Noah is unilateral, that it's unconditional. But that's very unhelpful language to use, I think, because the very nature of a covenant is that it's about relationship, and a relationship implies communication and responsibility both ways. There's a sense in which all God's promises are unilateral in that he sovereignly makes a promise is the Lord of the universe, and he does so freely. He does as he pleases. And yet, all God's promises also lay demands and obligations upon human beings. And we can see that very clearly here in verses 1 to 7. The focus here in these verses is very much on the sanctity of life. God's covenant clearly makes a requirement of mankind. God's covenant is a divine initiative, but yes, always it demands a human response. And through this covenant, man is made responsible to preserve human life. And clearly the theme of, of the sanctity of life, the preciousness of life, especially of human life, is what unites these verses. And there are three emphases, all of them, about life and its preservation. First of all, look at verses 1 and 7, which bracket this section. They speak of the responsibility of man for the propagation of human life. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Verses 1 and verse 7, directly repeating Genesis 1, because this is a new beginning. But God has the same goal. He wants an earth filled with people in his own image. Now again, it's worth noting the strong contrast to paganism. In pagan flood stories, 
The gods hate human beings. They don't want them to multiply. They want to reduce the numbers of humanity. And so after the flood, the gods are cursing the the, the human population that's left with sterility. It's interesting, isn't it, how pagan cultures still have that view of human life, a very low view. Very often it's not seen as a blessing, but it's seen as a curse, especially if it's the wrong sex. So in some countries... Mass abortion of female children is very common because they want a boy, not a girl. Now think about our own culture where abortion is becoming easier and easier. Where pregnancy so often is talked about as a burden, as a curse, not as a blessing, not as a gift. See, godless culture has still remained more or less unchanged. But biblical culture is so different because God loves people, human beings. We need to think about that in our whole attitude to, to life and to procreation. God tells human beings they are to cherish propagation, to be fruitful, to multiply. The true God is for population, not for depopulation. Secondly, man has responsibility to provide for human life. In verses 2 and 3, God clearly gives all the resources of the earth into man's hands for food. And the implication is that he is making human beings responsible for the use of these resources to provide for the lives of human beings. And so to fulfill God's command to fill the earth. Look at verse 2, that phrase, everything that creeps upon the ground. It's exactly the same word that's translated in verse 3 as every moving thing. He's referring here to one class of animals, probably wild animals, herds like deer and antelope and buffalo and so on. And now God is granting all of these as well uh, as food for man, in addition to the domestic livestock and so on that were likely already used uh, for food. That distinction uh, goes all the way back there to chapter 1, verse 24. But God clearly is giving animal life for food. Don't be confused, God is not commanding vegetarianism. No, by the way, should we assume that uh, the new creation will be a vegetarian kingdom. Every prophetic vision of the future talks of feasting on meats and the finest wines. We know that the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, didn't just eat chips, he ate the fish too. But notice verse 4. There's to be respect, do you see? even for the life of animals that are killed for food. And this regulation about eating the blood is there to instill respect for life. It's there to protect against wanton abuse, even of animal life. One scholar says that having meat in the human diet is not a license for savagery. So we shouldn't be unconcerned about uh, good farming and good husbandry and so on. The Bible makes that very clear. Proverbs chapter 12 says, The righteous has regard for the life of his beast. But clearly, as we see here, it's not principally animal life, but it is human life above all that is to be revered. Look at verses 5 and 6. They speak about the responsibility that God gives man for protection of human life. It's not just that God's uh, covenant to preserve the earth requires that we must respect all life, animals included, there is that, 
but he's to respect human life to the extent that he must require a reckoning for all human blood that is shed. And notice it's not optional. This is not a recommendation. It's God's requirement of man. It's integral to his covenant of preservation. Verse 5, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. See, God knows that the flood has not solved the problem of human sin and evil. It was a temporary measure. It was a partial measure. And as Henri Bloche puts it, these verses signify the presence of tensions and hostility of a new atmosphere on a global scale. And it's an atmosphere of of violence and of hatred and of murder. That's the world we know, isn't it? That's the real world. And God will preserve the world only through restraining its evil. And he does so in his common grace to the world by the initiation of public justice, of rule and order and government. And the principal requirement of that is justice that is just. That is, it's based squarely on on retribution. It's not just about deterrence or, or rehabilitation or convenience or anything else. This is something God requires, God demands of human society. It's a responsibility he places on mankind. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is saying that murder must be punished by judicial execution. And the reason is because of the precious sanctity of human life created in the image of God himself. Human life is precious. Even sinful human life is precious. And so God requires it of all human societies to protect the sanctity of human life. And to preserve that life by being ready, if violation occurs, to punish by the proper retribution. Which, he says here, for murder is for the murderer's life to be forfeit. I don't have time this morning to go into detail about the implications of that for the issue of capital punishment, for example, in societies today. But it seems to me... Whatever we say, the biblical principle here is entirely clear. It's it's totally consistent. Uh, It's irrefutable. God requires protection of human life. He requires a reckoning of a life for a life. This isn't something just for the passing age of, of Israel. It's part of God's covenant of preservation as long as the earth shall last. And the New Testament clearly affirms the role of Uh, The state, which Paul the Apostle says, bears the sword of judgment as God's institution. So no Christian who takes the Bible seriously can really argue against capital punishment on moral grounds as a principle, as a principle. After all, God himself inflicts capital punishment on every single person on this earth because of our sin. Every one of us will die under God's wrath for sin. The only argument you can have against capital punishment for murder, and it's murder that's being talked about here, 
The only argument is that because of society's fallibility and for the corruption in the judicial process and so on, uh, that the possibility of, uh, of false conviction so outweighs the claim of justice that we're no longer capable of carrying this penalty out safely. You can't argue that. Deuteronomy chapter 19, for example, tells us that God abhors wrongful conviction just as he abhors, uh, abhors a failure to punish correctly. So you can't argue that. Of course, on the other hand, you've also got to take into account that the same human fallibility was in evidence when God first gave this command. So you have to think about these things carefully. <clears throat> Let me say this, two things. On the one hand, there are Christians who think that restoring the death penalty to society is the thing that will transform our society, and they're quite obsessed with that, as though that was the only thing that mattered. Well, I think that is naive, even foolish. But on the other hand, there are Christians who are so anti the death penalty that in fact, they are lining themselves up against God himself. Actually, they're accusing God of immorality and of injustice. And that's a blasphemous thing. We must be very careful uh, of that. And they need to remember, don't they, that, that our salvation was won and our rescue from eternal spiritual death under the curse was won only because the just penalty for that sin and evil was inflicted by God on our Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, in him our God bore that punishment himself. That penalty was not abolished, but it was meted out on our Savior. But finally on this point, it is worth reflecting, I think, that if God's covenant of preservation for the world and therefore for all societies requires mankind to honor and to respect and to protect life and above all to protect human life and especially vulnerable human life and yet if our society if our nation increasingly seems to exhibit a disdain for life for the unborn for the aged for the malformed if our society refuses to protect life, if it appeases rather than punishing those who, who violate life, it shouldn't surprise us too much, should it, if we should find such societies falling under God's judgment, under God's curse. God's covenant with Noah was a promise to preserve the earth it doesn't say there will be no real judgments in time and in history on civilizations and on cultures. And if you read history, you'll see that where the requirements of God's gracious covenant of preservation have been scorned and abused, then God at times has lifted his restraining hands of judgment. And such cultures have brought self-destruction on themselves many times. So our Western world today, with all its arrogance, with all its scorn for human life, it needs to be warned, doesn't it? 
God's covenant reassures humanity about the security of the universe, but it also requires from mankind protection for the sanctity of life under God. And we need to take that seriously, don't we? But I want to look before we close lastly at this final section, verses 18 to 29, which are all about another thing that God's covenants always deal with. And that's the shape of the future in terms of blessings and curses. See, God's covenant gives a revelation to mankind. It's through God's covenant that he will ultimately undo man's hatred of his fellow man, a man's hatred of God, and will restore harmony and peace to all the scattered peoples of this earth. And that's what these verses are really all about. So I don't want to get bogged down in the, in the details of Noah's sin and so on. What these verses point up for us is that the world is not going to be rid of the real problem of sin until God's promise comes to its final fulfillment in dealing with that sin and evil forever. And God's people will always, therefore, be in a real struggle with sin, both without and within. Struggles with their own sin in the face of the world and the flesh and the devil, and struggling between the seeds, between those who are of faith and those who are of not, those who are of the serpent. And that's what we're seeing here. First of all, there's Noah's own frail humanity. Remember, Noah's name means to bring comfort. Well, it's all he plants vineyards and makes wine that the Bible rejoices in to gladden the heart of man. But Noah goes too far, doesn't he? He makes a fool of himself. And yes, we're We're to see, of course, that even great men are flawed. We're to be warned. But the focus of this section is not on Noah's behavior, but actually on that of his sons. And they show radically different attitudes to their father, to this man who was, remember, a mighty man of faith, who was in a very real sense their savior, the savior of the whole world. Shem and Japheth, they revere They respect their father. They give him dignity, verse 23. But Ham, you see, verse 22, shows a very different spirit. He he pruriently gloats over his father in his sinfulness. And then he publicly shames him, tells everyone about it. It's an ugly thing, isn't it, to, to gloat over other people's failings and their sin. It's an even uglier thing, isn't it, to gossip all about it and tell others. You see, the log in Ham's eye is far greater than the speck in Noah's eye, and he shows his true heart in despising Noah. He's devaluing and despising God and God's covenant promise and his covenant servant. And so the curse, verse 24 may seem unfair to us that Canaan would be cursed for his father's sin. But of course, on the one hand, that's simple reality, isn't it? What we are and what we do will affect our children, and their children probably. But in fact, the blessings and the curses here in verses 25 to 28, they all concern the future. They concern the descendants of those that verse 19 has said become the people who are dispersed all over the earth. See, Moses is telling his people where their enemies come from. He's telling 
his people why their enemies are as they are. And that's why Canaan's name is so prominent here five times in these verses. Moses is saying to the Israelites about to enter Canaan and have all the conflict with these enemies, he's saying to them, this is not a new thing. The Canaanites that you know that God has warned you against and told you to keep apart from because of their abominable practices, their idolatry, yes, their sexual perversions, he's saying they've always been enemies of God's people, and they always will be. That's what the New Testament affirms to us, isn't it? Paul says to the Galatians that those who are of the flesh always persecute those who are born according to the promise. And so it is today, says Paul, and so it is today still. As long as God preserves this world, there will be those of the enemy who sorely try and persecute the family of faith. There'll be weeds among the wheat right up until the final harvest. Isn't that what Jesus said? But take heart. He knows who are his. He knows how to bless them. And he will bless them. And we see that way back here. Shem is blessed by God, verse 26. And Canaan and his enemies will be ultimately put under his feet. God's promise to curse finally those who are insistent and persistent enemies of his promise. That is a huge comfort to his faithful people. Ask those today who are being persecuted for their faith all around the world, crying out for justice. And so is the promise that the root of that evil, the devil himself, who so plagues us still, that he at the last will be destroyed forever. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, says the Apostle Paul to the Roman church. But that promise is right here, way back in Genesis chapter 9. God's enemies, his people's enemies, will be subdued. It is his covenant promise. But as we close, look at the blessings here, as well as just the curse. God will bless his people. The line of Shem, the continued promised seed through the Shemites, the Semites of whom Israel, the nation, would come. In contrast to Canaan, the implacable foe of Israel, Shem will be blessed. And that's the story, isn't it, that you read all the way on from here throughout the whole of the Old Testament. The blessing of God's covenant upon his people. But what about Japheth, verse 27? What about his seed? And what about all this enlarging of his tents in blessing that, that they will come in also and dwell in the tents of Shem? together with them, as victors over all of God's enemies. What's that about? Well, if you read on into Genesis 10, you'll find the Japhethites became the people, the coastal peoples of the Mediterranean Sea, Turkey and Greece and all the surrounding lands, eventually to Rome itself. In other words, the Japhethites are all the people of the whole Gentile world that Jesus and the apostles knew. It's the world of the Acts of the Apostles where we read about Jewish Christian apostles, descendants of Shem, going everywhere and proclaiming that at last the promised Messiah of Israel had come. And what were they amazed to see? That the promise of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. 
And that to the Gentiles also God had granted repentance that leads to life. And that's the mystery of the unsearchable wisdom of God. That even though in the main Israel, the nation rejected the message of Christ. Yet as Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 11, into their olive tree, God has grafted in a wild olive shoot, the Gentile world, to share in the nourishing root of richness of that olive tree, of God's covenant people, of the descendants of Shem. And he has at last enlarged the tents of Japheth. He's let them dwell in the tents of Shem as the victorious people of the covenant God. One people together, Jew and Gentile. The God who restrained the sin and the evil of man in this world so as to ultimately step in at last to redeem it. To bring Shemite and Japhethite, Jew and Gentile, together into one household, the household of God. We're all, most of us here this morning, Japhethites, dwelling in the tents of Shem. That's what Christmas is all about. Do you remember what old Simeon said? When he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, my eyes have seen your salvation. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, the Japhethites. And also a glory to your people Israel, to the tents of Shem. Aren't you glad that that we know the God who right from the beginning restrained this world by his covenant of preservation in order to redeem it? And it will do so until the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Japhethites has come in to the tents of Shem. So that in this way, says the Apostle Paul, all God's people, all his true Israel will be saved. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ right here in Genesis chapter 9. Amen. Let's pray together. How we thank you, O God of the covenant, for the marvels of the mystery of your great plan of redemption. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in it, as we now know it so wonderfully fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we celebrate so gladly at Christmas time, so that knowing your great reassurance, your great revelation we may take our great responsibilities seriously as your witnessing people in this world in this nation and in our own city here help us we pray to let your light shine for we ask it in Jesus name Amen